0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and non-fiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. It's May 1857. The Indian city of Shahjahanabad, today called Delhi, is tense. British officers are worried about rumors of insubordination and rebellion elsewhere in India, while the local residents both await and fear a coming storm of revolutionary fervor. Trying to make a living in this setting is Mirza Ghalib, one of India's most celebrated poets, well known for his works in Urdu and Persian. He is also the protagonist, at least in a fictionalized form, of Murder at the Mushaira by Raza Mir. The novel is a murder mystery. A particularly disliked poet is murdered at a poetry recital, forcing Galip to play detective, balancing both haughty English officials and passionate Indian mutineers as he attempts to seek the truth. Razamir teaches management at William Patterson University in the United States. He has written a few academic books and three books of translation and literary criticism about Urdu poetry and poets. Murder at the Mushaira is his first novel. In this interview... I'll ask Raza to introduce both Ghalib and Shah Jahanabad. We'll talk about the historical roots of his story, including where he diverges from historical accuracy. And we'll discuss why literary figures like Ghalib are so popular as detectives. So, Raza, thank you so much for joining me today. Perhaps it's best to start with the book's main character, uh, Mirza Ghalib. Who was he, and how did you adapt the historical person to be the main character of
1: your book? Thank you very much, Nicholas. I am a long-time listener and a fan of sorts, and I'm really, really psyched to be here today. Mirza Ghalib, who is the protagonist of my novel, is perhaps the foremost Urdu poet uh, who lived in Delhi in the mid-19th century. In the 19th century. And uh, he is considered somebody who is in the classical mold. But uh, his life really moved from the feudal era of uh, uh, Mughal India into the relatively modern era of uh, colonial India. And so I thought that he was a very good protagonist to to chart the rather violent transformation of India into a full-fledged colony, uh, which began after the revolt of 1857. Uh, I began to learn a lot about Ghalib. Ghalib was very much a part of my life growing up, Uh, but when I became uh, more and more aware of both his personality and the circumstances of history in which he lived, I thought that he would be a great character for a novel. And that's how the novel took shape.
0: So could you share a few details about the central mystery of the book? What's the crime and what's the mystery to be solved?
1: Sure. Uh, In order to do that, I just want to say that uh, the 1857 revolt, which was a long time in the making in India, really its moment of inauguration can be seen as the point when rebels from different parts of India uh, began to revolt against their uh, superiors, soldiers, and these people came to Delhi on the morning of the 11th of May, 1857, and uh, took over the city. So I thought that would be a point of inflection for the story and just went back to it and created, a, created an intrigue uh, where the success of the rebels would be predicated upon a few uh, actions that they took. And I built that into the plot. The central mystery of the book is uh, that a murder has taken place and uh, it appears that who, killed, who committed the murder and uh, under what circumstances it was committed uh, provide a lot of uh, insight into whether this rebellion will succeed or fail. So it ends up being a bit of a race against time.
0: So... As you as you mentioned, it's it's set you know right as the Indian Mutiny is, is about to start. And in fact, it it's um, when it does start is perhaps the right in between the penultimate and the final chapters of the book. Um, but I guess what actually happens during the Indian Mutiny? What's the political situation like um, right before it happens? Um, and and what's the what's what's the relationship between I guess with between Um, Indian states and the British Empire?
1: Yes, that is uh, a very important question to be tackled uh, as we proceed through the book. Uh, You must remember that in 1857, prior to 1857, uh, of course, the British East India Company, which was a multinational corporation, was really administering India. It wasn't really formally the crown that was doing it at that moment. And their area of influence was most... uh, prominent on the eastern side of the subcontinent. So, Calcutta was their uh, capital. But they had already made substantial inroads uh, westwards all the way to Delhi, where they had their representatives. Notionally, Delhi then, in early 1857, was still uh, the seat of the Mughal Empire. And Bahadur Shah Zafar, the fi- the last uh, Mughal king, was uh, considered the emperor of Delhi. Now, of India, in fact. So, at this moment, uh, the backstory story is that the British have a plan in place that once Bahadur Shah dies, they are going to formally incorporate uh, the Mughal Empire into the British Empire, or at least into the Company Empire. And they, uh, the tax collection regime of the British around the mid-19th century intensified and led to a lot of misery, particularly in the rural areas of India. And that was really one of the predominant, uh, should I say, motivators of the rebellion. Uh, In the city of Delhi, this wasn't clearly apparent. So in some sense, it was business as usual, but there was a premonition of, uh, there was a certain kind of dread that was going through the city, which I tried to capture and uh, people felt uh, both on the British side and on the Indian uh, nobility side that something awful was afoot and uh, well it did come to pass we know that uh, it happened at a historical level Uh, and the book really sort of charts its happening and uh, envelops them into its plot.
0: Um, So we've talked about the the historical setting but obviously um poetry is a central part of the book as well um galib and i realize now that i pronounced his name incorrectly throughout the introduction um but um i mean galib is a is a is one of india's most celebrated poets he's the poet laureate um in the book uh and the book is and the story is bookended by two mushairas. Um, and so I guess I want to ask, you know, what, what is a Mushaira and what role uh, did they play in Indian society
1: at the time? Sure, I will speak to that. But before that, I would say that you didn't really mispronounce it. You know, there's a tremendous amount of latitude that you have uh, with the proper nouns, because in India itself, the cultural diversity of people is such that the way you pronounce the name reflects your background rather than the way their name is actually pronounced. So perhaps the way I say Ghalib uh, really tells people who I am. And you did a very fine job. So to go back to the Mushaira question, Mushairas are these poetic swarees. I just want to say a little bit about the Urdu language. The Urdu language is really a plebeian, a proletariat, a subaltern language that emerged uh, in opposition perhaps to some of the officialized languages of its time, uh, particularly Persian in the uh, Mughal court. Uh, so, the the calling card that Urdu had was its poetry. And its poetry was very popular. It was very popular among common people. And it was also popular among people who thought of themselves as literary figures. And so these Mushairas were extraordinary, extraordinary events. Uh, they would be public events, uh, the equivalent perhaps of our rock concerts at this point in time, where the poets would perform and the public would listen and it would be grist for the gossip mill long thereafter about who did well and who did better than whom and that sort of a thing. Uh, Mushairas continue to be popular even in the 21st century in India, but this was the time when really the the mushaya reached its peak, its apotheosis, and uh, they played an important role in A, popularizing the language, and also B, in terms of connecting various elements of the society together.
0: And so, how did you then work um, poetry into your actual writing of the story? Um, Galib is always kind of quoting couplets at times. Couplets are used as a way to transmit coded messages, um, to kind of send messages across crowds. Balsa uh, Ghalib is just quoting poetry all the time. Um, sure. I, I guess, how did you decide to kind of work work this poetry into your, your telling of the story?
1: Sure. Uh, what I do want to say is that if I may make a very loose uh, uh, analogy, then Ghalib is to Urdu what Shakespeare is to English, in the sense that he wrote a lot, And he wrote eloquently and over a period of time, the turns of phrase that Shakespeare offered the English language became incorporated and got so seamless that many times we quote a line or a phrase or a snippet of Shakespeare without even knowing it. In the same way, people quote Galib sometimes uh, uh, consciously, sometimes without knowing it. And uh, there are ways in which uh, his metaphor has become the bread and butter of the uh, Urdu language. And so, and Ghalib was fortunate enough to live long and uh, his corpus of poetry is big. Uh, So I was able to go and plumb his uh, works to find appropriate uh, lines of poetry that spoke to the different situations. Each chapter of mine in the book uh, begins with an epigraph, two lines of Galip's poem, which I have tried, obviously imperfectly, to link to my plot. And uh, the Mushaira, like I said, was culturally a slightly distinct place where the British had less uh, entry. So it became a point of some amount of, uh, should I say, cultural resistance even. uh, in, when people were experiencing colonialism uh, rather negatively, so it was quite natural for me to think of it as a place uh, where perhaps a certain amount of uh, spying and certain amount of communication between rebels could be done without potential British influence, and so I built that again in.
0: So obviously, there are there are many characters in the book other than um, Ghalib. uh so I guess who else in your book are either real historical figures or perhaps, you know, composite characters based off of a number of, of other historical figures?
1: Yes, I tried to use a lot of historical figures. I mean, uh, the interesting uh, thing about literary fiction is that you can incorporate uh, uh, people who, uh, who went through history, but the way you characterize them, is uh, really uh, something that is up to you. So obviously we have uh, some of the uh, poets who are participating in the Mushaira. They are all uh, uh, real people who have existed in history. Some of the central characters are the. Uh, The King Bahadur Shah Zafar is there. A variety of uh, British officials of the East India Company correspond to people who were there, who participated in the uh, 1857 rebellion. And uh, there are a large number of people who are uh, historical and they are layered with people who are fictional because I did have to use some fictional figures. But I do want to highlight one figure. There is a woman called Haidri, a young uh, a young woman who is central to the plot. Now, is she a historical figure or is she a fictional figure? Uh, the thing is that uh, she is married to a man called Mohan Lal. Now, Mohan Lal is a historical figure about whom we know a lot, and so I brought him into the plot. Uh, I, of course, uh, was able to repurpose his character to to my ends. But when I was reading the history of Mohanlal, I found a single line in uh, one of the historical texts that said he was married to a woman named Hedri. That's all I said was written. So with that one name, I created an entire character, an entire character. Of course, the character is entirely fiction, but that one name tethers her to history. And uh, you will see the significance, Nicholas, right away because uh, Mohan Lal is a Hindu name and Hedri is a Muslim name. So there was a Hindu who was married to a Muslim, but the person who wrote this historical tract did not find it particularly remarkable. They just mentioned it and moved right along, and that itself is a hint to me that the relationship between you know uh, the communities. Was uh, was very very mature and uh, mutually respectful. At
0: that, I hadn't realized, and I mean, now that I'm looking at your at, at your author's note at the end of the book, that Mohan Lal was a real person. Um, and I was quickly looking him up when you mentioned that he was a real person. Uh, and anyway, I, I was I I I was kind of surprised by that, and and, and how obviously his historical background is used to flesh out um, the character in your book. Um, I also want to bring up the, uh, the British character, um, of, of Edward, uh, of Edward Vibart, who is quite an aggressive and not particularly, uh, I'm trying to think of the, of the right word, um, not, not a particularly polite young British official, uh, in the book. Um, and as I was doing additional research on the Indian mutiny, um, for Bishwa's interview, I noticed, uh, his name pops up quite a few times too, in terms of, uh, Writings on yes. The
1: subject. So, if I may, uh, if I may look at the British characters along with you, and we can discuss this a little more. Uh, to me, there are in British society, of course, is extremely heterogeneous, and it it's got the same sort of uh, class differences and the problems that are there in Indian society. To me, Edward Weibart, young Edward Vibart, uh, represents the extreme negative pole. Uh, uh, you know there are a lot, lot of elements in the colonial administration who thought of the Indians as a subhuman species and took great pleasure in putting them down. Uh, you know rather cruelly and murderously after the 1857 revolt. And Edward Weibart, who is a historical figure, has written rather gleefully about how he you know uh, killed a large number of people. So. I mean, I think it's fair to present him that way. On the other end of it is a character called Andrew Watson. Andrew Watson is entirely fictional, but Andrew Watson represents to me uh, the sympathetic end. You know, the British society was characterized of the mid-19th century, was characterized by a tremendous amount of exploitation. And so the, the sort of downtrodden of British society who are often conscripted into the uh, uh, East India Company's military force is represented by Andrew Watson, who comes in here and falls in love with the land, and in some ways pays the same price that the locals do uh, for uh, his uh, sort of uh, you know speaking truth to the to the administration of the East India Company. There are other British characters who form the spectrum. Between Weibart and uh, Watson.
0: So I think I have I have one more question about about the the book, or more accurately, kind of the the book setting that, that you present. Um, I mean, you mentioned earlier when talking about Mohan Lal and and his wife um, Hyderi that that the historical document that you had uh, did not think it was an important enough detail to mention that it was a a that that it was a mixed marriage. Um, that whatever – whoever – whatever bureaucrat was putting down that data point did not see that as strange enough to make a note of it. Um, and obviously in the book, it's it's, it's a setting where uh, relations between Hindu communities, Muslim communities, um, they understand each other. They respect each other uh, in what feels like a quite marked difference from uh, how that gets presented today in today's India. Um, I guess, first of all, you know, was there greater, I guess, understanding and coexistence um, in the 19th century, in the time in which you've set the book? Sure.
1: I I think that the relationships between Hindus and Muslims have uh, ebbed and flowed uh, through history. Uh, Sometimes they've been good, sometimes they've been bad, uh, but never have they been. Uh, Inflected by this amount of suspicion and difference and separation uh, that we have, uh, especially in the past two decades in India, and unfortunately the trajectory in India is uh, towards uh, you know a greater amount of separation and a greater amount of suspicion, and I really fear that uh, things in India are headed in the wrong direction. But to come back to the 19th century. Uh, It it really, I mean, having read a lot about that period as part of uh, background history for this novel, I can say that the relationships between Hindus and Muslims were things that had been worked out at a very, very uh, basic and organic level. People knew exactly how to behave with each other. People would have murderous fights. A Hindu would have a murderous fight with a Muslim. But that the fact that there were uh, different religions would not come up. So that was not something that they incorporated into the way they engaged with each other. Of course, uh, I do not want to imply that religious difference was uh, was somehow had disappeared. No, on the contrary, uh, this particular case of inter-religious marriage was possibly the exception. Endogamy is a very important way in which uh, cultures uh, preserve their identity. And endogamy was taken for granted. But really, endogamy was at the level of caste, at the level of subcaste, at the level of region as well. And, you know, everybody negotiated those uh, at, uh, together. But uh, as far as Hindus and Muslims are concerned, uh, they they hung out a lot. They socialized a lot. Everybody knew what needed to be done at different, uh, you know, festivals, and every now and then they fought. Many times they fought over the fact that you know two festivals happened to come on the same day, and then they had some uh, uh, dispute about which procession would go in which direction. But the relations were really, really a lot better at that time. I can say that with historical certainty.
0: So I'd like to kind of move on from. From the book itself and maybe talk more about um you and and your writing process and how you think and how you thought about writing the book first of all um again kind of i i I looked into your your bio and some of the previous books you've written um you've written on 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 gali before you've written on urdu poetry before um i guess was it different writing about him as in 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 that kind of setting a more kind of uh potentially academic, potentially more well I mean a non-fiction setting um,
1: rather than as a, an author of fiction. <laughs> Thank you for that question, Nicholas. I have a confession to make. I mean many first uh, authors will say this. My first novel has been in my head for well over a decade and that uh, piece uh, that nonfiction book that you talk about really emerged when I was doing research for this fiction book. Uh, let me just uh, kind of uh, chart out the way in which the book emerged. Uh, I I tried to think about this, and I read a book called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Uh, this happened in the mid, uh, uh, you know, around two thousand and five, two thousand and six, I think. Uh, it was a it was a very interesting send up that uh, Abraham Lincoln, who was uh, you know. Engaging in the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation and doing really important historical stuff for the United States by day uh, Was fighting vampires at night Uh, When I saw that I thought what a great neat little idea to take a historical figure and put them in a different setting and somewhere along the line I don't know how That idea morphed into my head as Mirza Ghalib detective and I began to read Mirza Ghalib's life, and I realized 1857 was an excellent point of uh, inflection that I would uh, choose Ghalib as a person who uh, was not only uh, somebody who went through 1857, but became an integral part of it. And, of course, the most important part of writing a novel, since I was trained more as a non-fiction writer, is to find a voice for your protagonist and other characters. And in the act of trying to find a voice for Ghalib, I began to read a lot about him, various biographies in, uh, in Urdu, in particular, and I realized that uh, there was no real book in English that fleshed it out, fleshed him out as a as a human being, and uh, either they were dense academic books or they were translations of his poetry. So I sort of decided that there was an there was a place for a small book that pitched him as a person, as a person who was walking through history and whose, his, uh, whose poetry reflected that. So, you know, long story short, I, uh, I took a capsule time and wrote the non-fiction book. And in the act of writing the non-fiction book, learned my character a little more. And then, of course, proceeded and finished the book. The book took a very long time to write. I hope my next book
0: um, so earlier, earlier on in the interview, you, you made an analogy to um, that 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 uh, that Galib is to Urdu like Shakespeare is to English, um, and there's a different connection there. I wanted to kind of bring out in, in this next question. Um, I quickly looked up how many books have the premise of Shakespeare as as a detective. Uh, the answer is um, a lot. There are a lot of books based on that premise, um, and so you know, I guess if you if if you had to speculate, why do you think um, literary figures like Shakespeare, like like Galib are such popular subjects um, for historical fiction of this kind? Uh, why they're why everyone wants to put them into the role as 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 detectives.
1: You know, I did not know that. I am so happy and so thrilled to hear this. That, And I am going to go and find some books of Shakespeare as a detective. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of uh, reimaginings of Shakespeare's life, both in uh, book form and uh, in movies. Uh, I think the more important thing is that the, the genre of uh, the murder mystery is uh, very compelling is very compelling. There is something about murders because the finality of it is uh, so stark that uh, people people are drawn towards them and the murder mystery is possibly one of the most, uh, uh, you know, utilized trope in fiction writing in every language. Now, literary and historical fiction is, uh, you know, demands compelling character. And uh, I think authors make uh, extraordinary characters. uh, But more importantly, uh, Shakespeare uh, and Ghalib, they have so much, uh, you know, in common and in parallel with each other that I can really see how uh, people would be uh, drawn towards them. What is common to both of them? One is that both of them were relatively poor and, uh, you know, sort of, but in, they inhabited the company of rich people. So they were in sort of a subaltern position. Ghalib was uh, the poet who was most regarded by his peers, but he was not the poet laureate. Political intrigue uh, ensured that he only became poet laureate of the Mughal Empire three years before the Mughal Empire ended, that is in 1854. Of course, he's the poet laureate uh, when my book is written. But for the longest time, he had to play second fiddle because he had backed the wrong horses in the political intrigue. Likewise, Shakespeare is out there, and when you think of Shakespeare in uh, you know in the Globe ecosystem, there are people like Richard Burbage and Ben Jonson and others who have the ear of the Elizabeth, Elizabethan uh, uh, establishment. And Shakespeare is really somebody who, whose only calling card is that he is the favorite of the masses, that when his uh, play comes, he is uh, most uh, widely regarded. So one could make an argument that Shakespeare and Galev uh, are uh, beautifully suited for a comparative study. And uh, so I'm, I'm really thrilled to hear that he's also the protagonist of some murder mysteries. And uh, when the reviews of this book came out, and I'm not talking about reviews by, uh, by professionals, but by people who write on Goodreads and things like that, there were many people who said, oh, I had always thought about this. I wanted to write it, but unfortunately now somebody else has written about it. So I think that you know people have thought about this uh, sort of genre for quite some time. So
0: one last question, I think. Um, before we before we wrap the interview. Um, if someone wanted to get a sense of the history behind your book, whether in terms of the city of Delhi or um, Ghalib's work, what should they look
1: for? Well, if you wanted to read about that period, I think that the best place to start, if you are an English-speaking uh, person, is the books by William Dalrymple. Uh, William Dalrymple wrote a series of four books, uh, has written a series of four books uh, uh, which are peripherally related to some of the events in Murder at the Mushara. The first one uh, called White Mughals uh, talks about the way in which the first initial encounters between England and uh, the the British and uh, Indians was a lot less power inflected. But the second one is the more important one, Uh, The last Mughal is the story of Bahadur Shah Zafar. Bahadur Shah Zafar is the protagonist and it has a substantial section devoted to 1857. And many of the characters who are peripheral characters in my book uh, appear in uh, Dalrymple's book as well. Uh, The aforementioned uh, Edward Weibart also makes a guest appearance there. Uh, The third book that uh, uh, Dalrymple wrote was called... uh, the Return of the King and it really talks about Afghanistan. Now in my book there is a there is a small segue into Afghanistan. Afghanistan at that point in time was a very important uh, piece of a puzzle between European powers. The British and the Russian and the French were fighting for uh, control over Afghanistan and as uh, uh, the reader uh, the listeners will know probably it's called it is uh, referred to as the Great Game. And uh, some elements of my uh, narrative touch upon that. The final book that uh, Dalrymple wrote uh, is called The Anarchy, which uh, which describes the East India Company in very, uh, I should say uh, negative terms and talks about ways in which uh, you know it governed India. Uh, rather uh, violently and exploitatively. So these four books, uh, sort of like an omnibus, uh, provide a lot of historical context. But if of the four, you had to read one for the context of this book, that would be the last one. There's a whole lot of uh, writing around that. But uh, I hope that my book uh, uh, provides uh, enough of context that it can be read on its own without people having go back and, uh, you know, plumb some reference lists.
0: So thank you for listening to our interview with Raza Mir, author of Murder at the Mushaira. Um, Raza, one actual last question for you. Uh, What's your next project, and uh, where can people find your work?
1: Sure, Nicholas. Uh, Before I answer that question, I wanted to thank you For the wonderful way in which you have uh, conducted the interview, I really learned a lot about my book. Sometimes you have thoughts and when you give words to them, you realize that uh, there's a lot that is still left unsaid. So the book has been uh, popular. The book has become a little popular. And uh, my publishers have uh, wondered whether there is room for something in the same genre. Uh, I had been working on a, a novel that was more contemporary, set in the 20th, uh, 21st century. Uh, but uh, as they say, going to popular public demand, I am visualizing a book uh, that really, sort of a prequel to this one. Where Mirza Ghalib, uh, you know, took a trip down to, the eastern part of India. He went down the Ganges River and uh, reached Calcutta and spent three years on a journey that he took to Calcutta and back. And I am plotting a book uh, that uh, has his trip in the background. Uh, Whether it comes to pass or not, uh, I will be able to say in a few months. But yeah, I'm at
0: so, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you're subscribed and listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast now on all your favorite podcast apps. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us with us for an interview with Dr. Razin Sally, author of Return to Sri Lanka, Travels in a Paradoxical Land. But before then, thank you, Raza, so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you. Thank you again.